Section 17 of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 3, translated by Jonathan Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Section 17. The Story of Allah ad or The Wonderful Lamp, Part 2. Allah ad remained in this state two days, without eating or drinking, and on the third looked upon death as inevitable. Clasping his hands with an entire resignation to the will of God, he said, There is no strength or power but in the great and high God. In this action of joining his hands, he rubbed the ring which the magician had put on his finger, and of which he knew not yet the virtue. Immediately a genie of enormous size and frightful aspect rose out of the earth, his head reaching the roof of the vault and said to him what wouldst thou have i am ready to obey thee as thy slave and the slave of all who may possess the ring on thy finger i and the other slaves of that ring at another time allah ad din who had not been used to such appearances would have been so frightened at the sight of so extraordinary a figure that he would not have been able to speak but the danger he was in made him answer without hesitation, Whoever thou art, deliver me from this place if thou art able. He had no sooner spoken these words than he found himself on the very spot where the magician had caused the earth to open. It was some time before his eyes could bear the light, after being so long in total darkness. But after he had endeavoured by degrees to support it, and began to look about him. He was much surprised not to find the earth open, and could not comprehend how he had got so soon out of its bowels. There was nothing to be seen but the place where the fire had been, by which he could nearly judge the situation of the cave. Then, turning himself towards the town, he perceived it at a distance in the midst of the gardens that surrounded it, and saw the way by which the magician had brought him, Returning God thanks to find himself once more in the world, he made the best of his way home. When he got within his mother's door, the joy to see her and his weakness for want of sustenance for three days made him faint, and he remained for a long time as dead. His mother, who had given him over for lost, seeing him in this condition, omitted nothing to bring him to himself. As soon as he had recovered, the first words he spoke were, Pray, mother, give me something to eat, for I have not put a morsel of anything into my mouth these three days. His mother brought what she had, and set it before him. My son, said she, be not too eager, for it is dangerous. Eat but little at a time, and take care of yourself. Besides, I would not have you talk. You will have time enough to tell me what has happened to you when you are recovered. It is a great comfort to me to see you again, after the affliction I have been in since Friday, and the pains I have taken to learn what was become of you. Allah ad took his mother's advice, and ate and drank moderately. When he had done, Mother, said he to her, I cannot help complaining of you for abandoning me so easily to the discretion of a man who had a design to kill me and who at this very moment thinks my death certain. 
you believed he was my uncle as well as I. And what other thoughts could we entertain of a man who was so kind to me and made such advantageous proffers? But I must tell you, mother, he is a rogue and a cheat, and only made me those promises to accomplish my death. But for what reason neither you nor I can guess? For my part, I can assure you, I never gave him any cause to justify the least ill-treatment from him. You shall judge yourself when you have heard all that passed from the time I left you till he came to the execution of his wicked design. Alla ad -Din then related to his mother all that had happened to him from the Friday, when the magician took him to see the palaces and gardens about the town, and what fell out in the way till they came to the place between the two mountains, where the great prodigy was to be performed. How, with incense, which the magician threw into the fire, and some magical words which he pronounced, the earth opened and discovered a cave, which led to an inestimable treasure. He forgot not the blow the magician had given him, in what manner he softened again, and engaged him by great promises, and putting a ring to his finger to go down into the cave. He did not omit the least circumstance of what he saw in crossing the three halls and the garden, and his taking the lamp which he pulled out of his bosom and showed to his mother, as well as the transparent fruit of different colours which he had gathered in the garden as he returned. But though these fruits were precious stones, brilliant as the sun, and the reflection of a lamp which then lighted the room might have led them to think they were of great value, she was as ignorant of their worth as her son, and cared nothing for them. She had been bred in a low rank of life, and her husband's poverty prevented his being possessed of jewels, nor had she, her relations or neighbours, ever seen any, so that we must not wonder that she regarded them as things of no value, and only pleasing to the eye by the variety of their colours. Allah ad put them behind one of the cushions of the sofa, and continued his story, telling his mother that when he returned to the mouth of the cave, upon his refusal to give the magician the lamp till he should get out, the stone, by his throwing some incense into the fire, and using two or three magical words, shut him in, and the earth closed. He could not help bursting into tears at the representation of the miserable condition he was in at finding himself buried alive in a dismal cave, till, by the touching of his ring, the virtue of which he was till then an entire stranger to, he, properly speaking, came to life again. When he had finished his story, he said to his mother, I need say no more, you know the rest. This is my adventure, and the danger I have been exposed to since you saw me. Allah ad -Din's mother heard with so much patience as not to interrupt him this surprising and wonderful relation, notwithstanding it could be no small affliction to a mother who loved her son tenderly. But yet, in the most moving part, which discovered the perfidy of the African magician, she could not help showing, by marks of the greatest indignation, how much she detested him, and when her son had finished his story, she broke out into a thousand reproaches against that vile impostor. She called him perfidious traitor, barbarian, assassin, deceiver, magician, and an enemy and destroyer of mankind. 
without doubt child added she he is a magician and they are plagues to the world and by their enchantments and sorceries have commerce with the devil bless god for preserving you from his wicked designs for your death would have been inevitable if you had not called upon him and implored his assistance she said a great deal more against the magician's treachery but finding that whilst she talked alla ad -Din, who had not slept for three days and nights began to doze she left him to his repose and retired alla ad -Din, who had not closed his eyes while he was in the subterraneous abode slept very soundly till late the next morning when the first thing he said to his mother was that he wanted something to eat and that she could not do him a greater kindness than to give him his breakfast alas child said she i have not a bit of bread to give you you ate up all the provisions i had in the house yesterday but have a little patience and it shall not be long before i will bring you some i have a little cotton which i have spun i will go and sell it buy bread and something for our dinner mother replied alla ad -Din, keep your cotton for another time and give me the lamp i brought home with me yesterday i will go and sell it and the money i shall get for it will serve both for breakfast and dinner and perhaps supper too alla ad -Din's mother took the lamp and said to her son here it is but it is very dirty if it was a little cleaner i believe it would bring something more she took some fine sand and water to clean it but had no sooner begun to rub it than in an instant a hideous genie of gigantic size appeared before her and said to her in a voice like thunder what wouldst thou have i am ready to obey thee as thy slave and the slave of all those who have that lamp in their hands i and the other slaves of the lamp alla ad -Din's mother terrified at the sight of the genie fainted when alla ad -Din, who had seen such a phantom in the cavern snatched the lamp out of his mother's hand and said to the genie boldly i am hungry bring me something to eat the genie disappeared immediately and in an instant returned with a large silver tray holding twelve covered dishes of the same metal which contained the most delicious viands, six large white bread cakes on two plates, two flagons of wine, and two silver cups. All these he placed upon a carpet and disappeared. This was done before Alla ad -Din's mother recovered from her swoon. Alla ad -Din had fetched some water and sprinkled it in her face to recover her. Whether that or the smell of the meal brought her to life again, it was not long before she came to herself. Mother, said Alla ad -Din, do not mind this. Get up and come and eat. Here is what will put you in heart, and at the same time satisfy my extreme hunger. Do not let such delicious meat get cold. His mother was much surprised to see the great tray, twelve dishes, six loaves, the two flagons and cups, and to smell the savoury odour which exhaled from the dishes. "'Child,' said she, "'to whom are we obliged for this great plenty and liberality? Has the sultan been made acquainted with our poverty, and had compassion on us?' "'It is no matter, mother,' said Alla ad -Din. 
let us sit down and eat, for you have almost as much need of a good breakfast as myself. When we have done, I will tell you. Accordingly, both mother and son sat down, and ate with the better relish as the table was so well furnished. But all the time Allah ad Deen's mother could not forbear looking at and admiring the tray and dishes, though she could not judge whether they were silver or any other metal, and the novelty more than the value attracted her attention. The mother and son sat at breakfast till it was dinner-time, and then they thought it would be best to put the two meals together. Yet after this they found they should have enough left for supper, and two meals for the next day. When Alla ad Deen's mother had taken away and set by what was left, she went and sat down by her son on the sofa, saying, I expect now that you should satisfy my impatience and tell me exactly what passed between the genie and you while I was in a swoon, which he readily complied with. She was in as great amazement at what her son told her as at the appearance of the genie, and said to him, But son, what have we to do with genie? I never heard that any of my acquaintance had ever seen one. How came that vile genie to address himself to me, and not to you, to whom he had appeared before in the cave? Mother, answered Allah ad Deen, the genie you saw is not the one who appeared to me, though he resembles him in size. No, they had quite different persons and habits. They belong to different masters. If you remember, he that I first saw called himself the slave of the ring on my finger, and this you saw called himself the slave of the lamp you had in your hand. But I believe you did not hear him, for I think you fainted as soon as he began to speak. What? cried the mother. Was the lamp, then, the occasion of that cursed genie addressing himself rather to me than to you? Ah, my son, take it out of my sight, and put it where you please, I will never touch it. I had rather you would sell it than run the hazard of being frightened to death again by touching it. And if you would take my advice, you would part also with the ring, and not have anything to do with genie, who, as our prophet has told us, are only devils. With your leave, mother, replied Allah ad Deen, I shall now take care how I sell a lamp which may be so serviceable both to you and me. Have not you been an eye-witness of what it has procured us? And it shall still continue to furnish us with subsistence and maintenance. You may suppose, as I do, that my false and wicked uncle would not have taken so much pains, and undertaken so long and tedious a journey, if it had not been to get into his possession this wonderful lamp, which he preferred before all the gold and silver which he knew was in the halls and which I have seen with my own eyes. He knew too well the worth of this lamp, not to prefer it to so great a treasure. And since chance hath discovered the virtue of it to us, let us make a profitable use of it, without making any great show and exciting the envy and jealousy of our neighbours. However, since the genie frighten you so much, I will take it out of your sight, and put it where I may find it when I want it. The ring I cannot resolve to part with, for without that you had never seen me again. And though I am alive now, perhaps if it was gone, 
I might not be so some moments hence. Therefore, I hope you will give me leave to keep it, and to wear it always on my finger. Who knows what dangers you and I may be exposed to, which neither of us can foresee, and from which it may deliver us. As Allah ad Din's arguments were just, his mother had nothing to say against them. She only replied that he might do what he pleased. For her part, she would have nothing to do with Jeanie, but would wash her hands of them, and never say anything more about them. By the next night, they had eaten all the provisions the genie had brought, and the next day, Allah ad Din, who could not bear the thoughts of hunger, putting one of the silver dishes under his vest, went out early to sell it, and addressing himself to a Jew whom he met in the streets, took him aside, and pulling out the plate, asked him if he would buy it. The cunning Jew took the dish, examined it, and, as soon as he found that it was good silver, asked Allah ad Din at how much he valued it. Allah ad Din, who knew not its value, and never had been used to such traffic, told him he would trust to his judgment and honour. The Jew was somewhat confounded at this plain dealing, and doubting whether Allah ad Din understood the material or the full value of what he offered to sell, took a piece of gold out of his purse and gave it him, though it was but the sixtieth part of the worth of the plate. Allah ad Din, taking the money very eagerly, retired with so much haste that the Jew, not content with the exorbitancy of his profit, was vexed he had not penetrated into his ignorance, and was going to run after him to endeavour to get some change out of the piece of gold. But he ran so fast, and had got so far, that it would have been impossible for him to overtake him. Before Allah ad Din went home, he called at the baker's, bought some cakes of bread, changed his money, and, on his return, gave the rest to his mother, who went and purchased provisions enough to last them some time. After this manner they lived, till Allah ad Din had sold the twelve dishes singly, as necessity pressed, to the Jew for the same money, who, after the first time, durst not offer him less, for fear of losing so good a bargain. When he had sold the last dish, he had recourse to the tray, which weighed ten times as much as the dishes, and would have carried it to his old purchaser, but that it was too large and cumbersome. Therefore he was obliged to bring him home with him to his mother's, where, after the Jew had examined the weight of the tray, he laid down ten pieces of gold, with which Allah ad Din was very well satisfied. They lived on these ten pieces in a frugal manner, and Allah ad Din, though used to an idle life, had left off playing with young lads of his own age ever since his adventure with the African magician. He spent his time in walking about and conversing with decent people, with whom he gradually got acquainted. Sometimes he would stop at the principal merchants' shops, where people of distinction met, and listen to their discourse, by which he gained some little knowledge of the world. When all the money was spent, Allah ad Din had recourse again to the lamp. He took it in his hand, looked for the part where his mother had rubbed it with the sand, rubbed it also, when the genie immediately appeared and said, What wouldst thou have? I am ready to obey thee as thy slave, and the slave of all those who have that lamp in their hands, I and the other slaves of the lamp. I am hungry said Allah ad Din, bring me something to eat. 
the genie disappeared and presently returned with a tray the same number of covered dishes as before set them down and vanished Allah ad deen's mother knowing what her son was going to do went out about some business on purpose to avoid being in the way when the genie came and when she returned was almost as much surprised as before at the prodigious effect of the lamp however she sat down with her son and when they had eaten as much as they liked she set enough by to last them two or three days as soon as Allah ad deen found that their provisions were expended he took one of the dishes and went to look for his jew chapman but passing by a goldsmith's shop who had the character of a very fair and honest man the goldsmith perceiving him called to him and said my lad i have often observed you go by loaded as you are at present and talk with such a jew and then come back again empty-handed i imagine that you carry something which you sell to him but perhaps you do not know that he is the greatest rogue even among the jews and is so well known that nobody of prudence will have anything to do with him what i tell you is for your own good if you will show me what you now carry and it is to be sold i will give you the full worth of it or i will direct you to other merchants who will not cheat you the hopes of getting more money for his plate induced Allah ad deen to pull it from under his vest and show it to the goldsmith who at first sight saw that it was made of the finest silver asked him if he had sold such as that to the jew when Allah ad deen told him that he had sold him twelve such for a piece of gold each what a villain cried the goldsmith but added he my son what is past cannot be recalled by showing you the value of this plate which is of the finest silver we use in our shops i will let you see how much the jew has cheated you the goldsmith took a pair of scales weighed the dish and after he had mentioned how much an ounce of fine silver cost assured him that his plate would fetch by weight sixty pieces of gold which he offered to pay down immediately if you dispute my honesty said he you may go to any other of our trade and if he gives you more i will be bound to forfeit twice as much for we gain only the fashion of the plate we buy and that the fairest dealing jews are not contented with aladdin thanked him for his fair dealing so greatly to his advantage took the gold and never after went to any other person but sold him all his dishes and the tray, and had as much for them as the weight came to. Though Allah ad deen and his mother had an inexhaustible treasure in the lamp, and might have had whatever they wished for, yet they lived with the same frugality as before, except that Allah ad deen dressed better. As for his mother, she wore no clothes but what she earned by spinning cotton. After their manner of living, it may easily be supposed that the money for which Allah ad deen had sold the dishes and tray was sufficient to maintain them some time. During this interval, Allah ad deen frequented the shops of the principal merchants, where they sold cloth of gold and silver, linens, silk stuffs, and jewellery, but oftentimes joining in their conversation, acquired a knowledge of the world and respectable demeanour. By his acquaintance among the jewellers he came to know that the fruits which he had gathered when he took the lamp 
were, instead of coloured glass, stones of inestimable value. But he had the prudence not to mention this to any one, not even to his mother. One day, as Alla ad was walking about the town, he heard an order proclaimed, commanding the people to shut up their shops and houses, and keep within doors, while the princess Boudir al-Badur, the sultan's daughter, went to the baths and returned. This proclamation inspired Alla ad with eager curiosity to see the princess's face, which he could not do without admission into the house of some acquaintance, and then only through a window, which did not satisfy him, when he considered that the princess, when she went to the baths, would be closely veiled. But to gratify his curiosity, he presently thought of a scheme which succeeded. It was to place himself behind the door of the bath, which was so situated that he could not fail of seeing her face. Allah ad had not waited long before the princess came, and he could see her plainly through a chink of the door without being discovered. She was attended by a great crowd of ladies, slaves, and eunuchs, who walked on each side and behind her. When she came within three or four paces of the door of the baths, she took off her veil and gave Alla ad an opportunity of a full view. As soon as Alla ad had seen the princess, his heart could not withstand those inclinations so charming an object always inspires. The princess was the most beautiful brunette in the world. Her eyes were large, lively, and sparkling. Her looks, sweet and modest. Her nose was of a just proportion and without a fault. Her mouth small. Her lips of a vermilion red and charmingly agreeable symmetry. In a word, all the features of her face were perfectly regular. It was not therefore surprising that Alla ad who had never before seen such a blaze of charms, was dazzled and his senses ravished by such an assemblage. With all these perfections, the princess had so fine a form and so majestic an air that the sight of her was sufficient to inspire love and admiration. After the princess had passed by and entered the baths, Alla ad remained some time astonished and in a kind of ecstasy, retracing and imprinting the idea of so charming an object deeply in his mind. But at last, considering that the princess was gone past him, and that when she returned from the bath her back would be towards him, and then veiled, he resolved to quit his hiding-place and go home. He could not so far conceal his uneasiness, but that his mother perceived it, was surprised to see him so much more thoughtful and melancholy than usual, and asked what had happened to make him so, or if he was ill. He returned her no answer but sat carelessly down on the sofa, and remained silent, musing on the image of the charming Boudir al-Badur. His mother, who was dressing supper, pressed him no more. When it was ready, she served it up, and perceiving that he gave no attention to it, urged him to eat, but had much ado to persuade him to change his place, which when he did, he ate much less than usual, all the time cast down his eyes, and observed so profound a silence that she could not obtain a word in answer to all the questions she put, in order to find the reason of so extraordinary an alteration. After supper she asked him again why he was so melancholy, but could get no information, and he determined to go to bed 
rather than give her the least satisfaction. Without examining how he passed the night, his mind full, as it was, with the charms of the princess, I shall only observe that as he sat next day, on the sofa, opposite his mother, as she was spinning cotton, he spoke to her in these words. I perceive, mother, that my silence yesterday has much troubled you. I was not, nor am I, sick, as I fancy you believed. But I assure you that what I felt then, and now endure, is worse than any disease. I cannot explain what ails me, but doubt not what I am going to relate will inform you. It was not proclaimed in this quarter of the town, and therefore you could know nothing of it, that the sultan's daughter was yesterday to go to the baths. I heard this as I walked about the town, and an order was issued that all the shops should be shut up in her way thither, and everybody keep within doors, to leave the streets free for her and her attendants. As I was not then far from the bath, I had a great curiosity to see the princess's face, and as it occurred to me that the princess, when she came nigh the door of the bath, would pull her veil off, I resolved to conceal myself behind the door. You know the situation of the door, and may imagine that I must have had a full view of her. The princess threw off her veil, and I had the happiness of seeing her lovely face with the greatest security. This mother was the cause of my melancholy and silence yesterday. I love the princess with more violence than I can express, and as my passion increases every moment, I cannot live without the possession of the amiable Badir Abudur, and am resolved to ask her in marriage of the sultan her father. Alla ad Deen's mother listened with surprise to what her son told her, but when he talked of asking the princess in marriage, she could not help bursting out into a loud laugh. Alla ad Deen would have gone on with his rhapsody, but she interrupted him. Alas, child, said she, what are you thinking of? You must be mad to talk thus. I assure you, mother, replied Alla ad Deen, that I am not mad, but in my right senses. I foresaw that you would reproach me with folly and extravagance, but I must tell you once more that I am resolved to demand the princess of the sultan in marriage, and your remonstrances shall not prevent me. Indeed, son, replied the mother seriously, I cannot help telling you that you have forgotten yourself, and if you would put this resolution of yours in execution, I do not see whom you can prevail upon to venture to make the proposal for you. You yourself, replied he immediately. I go to the sultan, answered the mother, amazed and surprised. I shall be cautious how I engage in such an errand. Why, who are you, son, continued she, that you can have the assurance to think of your sultan's daughter? Have you forgotten that your father was one of the poorest tailors in the capital, and that I am of no better extraction? And do not you know that sultans never marry their daughters but to princes, sons of sovereigns like themselves? Mother, answered Alla ad Deen, I have already told you that I foresaw all that you have said or can say, and tell you again that neither your discourse 
nor your remonstrances, shall make me change my mind. I have told you that you must ask the princess in marriage for me. It is a favour I desire of you, and I beg of you not to refuse, unless you would rather see me in my grave than by your compliance give me new life. The good old woman was much embarrassed when she found Allah ad Deen obstinately persisting in so wild a design. My son, said she again, I am your mother who brought you into the world, and there is nothing that is reasonable but I would readily do for you. If I were to go and treat about your marriage with some neighbour's daughter, whose circumstances were equal with yours, I would do it with all my heart, and even then they would expect you should have some little estate or fortune, or be of some trade. When such poor folks as we are wish to marry, the first thing they ought to think of is how to live. But without reflecting on the meanness of your birth, and the little merit and fortune you have to recommend you, you aim at the highest pitch of exaltation, and your pretensions are no less than to demand in marriage the daughter of your sovereign, who with one single word can crush you to pieces. I say nothing of what respects yourself. I leave you to reflect on what you have to do, if you have ever so little thought. I come now to consider what concerns myself, how could so extraordinary a thought come into your head as that I should go to the Sultan and make a proposal to him to give his daughter in marriage to you? Suppose I had, not to say the boldness, but the impudence, to present myself before the Sultan and make so extravagant a request, to whom should I address myself to be introduced to his majesty? Do you not think the first person I should speak to would take me for a madwoman, and chastise me as I should deserve? Suppose, however, that there is no difficulty in presenting myself for an audience of the Sultan, and I know there is none to those who go to petition for justice, which he distributes equally among his subjects. I know, too, that to those who ask a favour, he grants it with pleasure when he sees it is deserved, and the persons are worthy of it. But is that your case? Do you think you have merited the honour you would have me ask for you? Are you worthy of it? What have you done to claim such a favour, either for your prince or country? How have you distinguished yourself? If you have done nothing to merit so high a distinction, nor are worthy of it, with what face shall I ask it? How can I open my mouth to make the proposal to the Sultan? His majestic presence and the lustre of his court would absolutely confound me, who used even to tremble before my dear husband, your father, when I asked him for anything. There is another reason, my son, which you do not think of, which is that nobody ever goes to ask a favour of the Sultan without a present. But what presents have you to make? and if you had any that were worthy of the least attention of so great a monarch, what proportion could they bear to the favour you would ask? Therefore, reflect well on what you are about, and consider that you aspire to an object which it is impossible for you to obtain. Allah ad heard very calmly all that his mother could say to dissuade him from his design, 
and after he had weighed her representations in all points, replied, "'I own, mother, it is great rashness in me to presume to carry my pretensions so far, and a great want of consideration to ask you, with so much heat and precipitancy, to go and make the proposal to the sultan without first taking proper measures to procure a favourable reception, and therefore beg your pardon.' but be not surprised that through the violence of my passion I did not at first see every measure necessary to procure me the happiness I seek. I love the princess, or rather I adore her, and shall always persevere in my design of marrying her. I am obliged to you for the hint you have given me, and look upon it as the first step I ought to take to procure the happy issue I promise myself." You say it is not customary to go to the sultan without a present, and that I have nothing worthy of his acceptance. As to the necessity of a present, I agree with you, and own that I never thought of it. But as to what you say that I have nothing fit to offer, do not you think, mother, that what I brought home with me, the day on which I was delivered from an inevitable death, may be an acceptable present? I mean what you and I both took for coloured glass. But now I am undeceived, and can tell you that they are jewels of inestimable value, and fit for the greatest monarchs. I know the worth of them by frequenting the shops, and you may take my word that all the precious stones which I saw in the most capital jeweller's possessions were not to be compared to those we have, either for size or beauty and yet they value theirs at an excessive price. In short, neither you nor I know the value of ours. But be it as it may, by the little experience I have, I am persuaded that they will be received very favourably by the Sultan. You have a large porcelain dish fit to hold them. Fetch it, and let us see how they will look, when we have arranged them according to their different colours. Allah ad Din's mother brought the china dish, when he took the jewels out of the two purses in which he had kept them, and placed them in order according to his fancy. But the brightness and lustre they emitted in the daytime, and the variety of the colours, so dazzled the eyes both of mother and son, that they were astonished beyond measure, for they had only seen them by the light of the lamp, and though the latter had beheld them pendant on the trees like fruit beautiful to the eye, Yet, as he was then but a boy, he looked on them only as glittering playthings. After they had admired the beauty of the jewels some time, Allah ad Deen said to his mother, Now you cannot excuse yourself from going to the Sultan, under pretext of not having a present to make him, since here is one which will gain you a favourable reception. Though the good widow, notwithstanding the beauty and lustre of the precious stones, did not believe them so valuable as her son estimated them, she thought such a present might nevertheless be agreeable to the sultan, but still she hesitated at the request. "'My son,' said she, "'I cannot conceive that your present will have its desired effect, or that the sultan will look upon me with a favourable eye. I am sure that if I attempt to deliver your strange message, I shall have no power to open my mouth. Therefore, I shall not only lose my labour, but the present, which you say is so invaluable, and shall return home again in confusion, 
to tell you that your hopes are frustrated. I have represented the consequence, and you ought to believe me. But, added she, I will exert my best endeavour to please you, and wish I may have power to ask the sultan, as you would have me. But certainly he will either laugh at me, send me back like a fool, or be in so great a rage as to make us both the victims of his fury. She used many other arguments to endeavour to make him change his mind, but the charms of the princess had made too great an impression on his heart for him to be dissuaded from his design. He persisted in importuning his mother to execute his resolution, and she, as much out of tenderness as for fear he should be guilty of greater extravagance, complied with his request. End of section 17